Hey, it's Dusty from the Lead Balloon Podcast, the show where we talk to communications professionals from global brands and institutions and tell stories of the lessons they've learned in do-or-die professional situations. And communicating during COVID-19 is a topic we've discussed several times on this show. Well, as of today, May 11th, 2023, from the Department of Health and Human Services, the COVID-19 public health emergency is expiring. But just because COVID is, air quotes, over, doesn't mean that we're not going to be discussing it anymore as strategic communicators. And so I wanted to bring back someone who has been a voice of reassurance and reason throughout this whole horrible three-year ordeal. Bill Pierce was a spokesman for the Department of Health and Human Services in the George W. Bush administration. Today, he's a crisis communications consultant at APCO Worldwide and an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University. Bill joined us in episode seven of this podcast when the pandemic was really just getting started and we were mired in pandemonium. Also, he joined us on episode 16 when we talked about vaccine messaging. So, Bill Pierce, welcome back to the show and thanks again for joining us on Lead Balloon. Dusty, it's uh, always good to be here, and uh, kudos and congratulations to you. In between my visits to the show, you've won numerous awards for your program, and, and it's well-deserved. Thanks in no small part to the generous and incredible people who have shared the time and talents and expertise with us here on the show, so thank you for that as well, Bill. But I got to say, it feels so appropriate to speak with you today, for me personally, as a sort of bookend to my own global pandemic experience. I, I know I said the same to you when I was in D.C. a couple of months ago and you made time to grab a coffee with me. I told you then how surreal it was to have spoken with you early in the pandemic and in the middle of the pandemic and then to finally be able to sit down face to face without masks and just be people talking about something other than the pandemic. Right. It's been... A long, long, long three years for all of us. But the end of the COVID-19 public health emergency is not the end of COVID, yeah. as everyone today is very, very careful to point out in their messaging. But what does it mean and why now? Well, I think there's a couple of different ways to look at that. Uh, what it means is public health emergencies are something very specific that the department declares it provides it, the department, with extra authorities and abilities to do things that it otherwise would not. So, so it means those, those authorities go away, uh, number one. It also means that s several types of actions it took were tied to the, the public health emergency. One of the biggest ones is expanded Medicaid coverage for literally millions of people who with the end of it, and it ends, I don't know whether it ends at the beginning of the day or at 5 p.m., it means they will have to reapply. And this is a really important thing. So you'll have to reapply to see whether or not you continue to be covered by Medicaid. That, that's an important thing. The other things it means will not immediately, the vaccines, which were free to everybody, will no longer be free. The tests, which were free to everybody, will no longer be free. Now, the government is reserving funds. They have money to continue to provide that, but it will run out too. So people have to start thinking of, these are things now going to be covered by my insurance. I should find out from my insurance, are they covered? The good news is, is because almost all vaccines are covered uh, by insurance and the vast majority are free, 
I suspect this will fall into the same category. So if you're if you're insured, you won't have to pay for it. Same thing with testing. There may be a co-pay with the test or a co-insurance with the test, but you won't be paying full price for the tests. So those are the kinds of things that change. The other things that change that we can expect are the pharmaceutical industry is going to continue to provide uh, and do research into perhaps more vaccines, that there may be a COVID flu vaccine in our future. Uh, there may be new tests. Uh, and there certainly is going to be new treatments. Those things are all going to go through regular order, if you will. No longer will the emergency use authorization, a phrase we all became very familiar with, that won't be the pathway anymore. So it will take a little bit longer and it take a little bit perhaps more expensive to bring those things to the table. And the government won't be investing like they did before in those kinds of efforts, because don't forget the government invested, uh, with the exception of Pfizer, they invested in everybody else's manufacturing. And so uh, that ha- that was a huge help. They also literally used the weight and ability, logistic ability of the government to help do things to, to get us. That was, po- that was the reason we were so quickly got the vaccine. So those are the kinds of things that will change. But what won't change? The virus continues to circulate in the population. We're still seeing hundreds of deaths a day from COVID-19. It has really started to focus in the elderly, uh, overweight, people with diabetes. Uh, unfortunately, then social groups that that have higher incidences of those things. So, you know, among African-Americans, Hispanics, et cetera, those are the things which aren't going to change. But for the vast majority of the rest of the population, uh, and I've just read some data recently, the vaccines continue to be effective in preventing certainly hospitalization and severity of disease and still have some some basic effects of actually preventing the disease. And it's estimated up to 200 million or more people got the disease. So you have a lot of antibodies floating around in your bloodstream, which are believed to be that helpful. So a lot of authority goes away. A lot of money goes away. But the disease continues, and we still need to think about exposure, particularly for high-risk individuals, if they are in your families. And that's what we know today. Well, and I think that's another reason why it's so important for the messaging on this to not just be, hey, COVID is over. Go out there and do what you want to do, because there are people who are still high risk. My own grandfather, who's kicking around in his mid-80s, is triply vaccinated and got his first case of COVID. uh, I think it was six months ago or something like that. He's had heart troubles and lung troubles in the past, and and he hasn't felt right since he had that COVID. And, And so it is high risk, and it's important that you don't make those sorts of groups feel like they're being left behind as the rest of the world rushes out to resume their life. Yeah. The, from the public communication standpoint, from public health departments, from the government, uh, state governments, we need to continue to just remind people of these facts, of the fact that, that the disease is endemic now. It's everywhere. China was kind of the last holdout when it changed its, its rules. Um, so it's everywhere. It's an endemic disease, much like any of the other endemic diseases. And the pandemic nature of it has faded But that doesn't mean it doesn't kill, it doesn't put people in the hospital, it's not a high risk. So if you're in those categories, you have to think to yourself, 
what's my level of exposure here in this circumstance? So people are paying more attention to it. I still see people. I ride the metro every day in Washington, D.C. There are a few of us who still wear a mask in the metro. I think it is prudent. I think masks are, but of course, they became controversial for reasons I truly don't understand. And the reason is, is there was a fight over their value, right? So right. for whatever reason, those who oppose masks tried to say, you're telling me they are 100% effective and nobody ever said that. But even if they're 10% effective, that's better than 0% effective. I mean, anytime you have a congregate setting with lots of people, perhaps circulation limited, et cetera, that's a consideration you need to wear or think. But, you know, to go to a baseball game, I don't wear a mask at a baseball game. It's outdoors, even though it's tight settings, perhaps. So those are the kind of things you still need to continue and pay attention to what the recommendations are for the vaccine. At the end of the day, I believe this will become an annual vaccine for all of us. It will be much like the flu based on what variant is in circulation. Right. And, and you're better off getting it even just from the perspective of, well, I don't want to have to miss work when I get sick. Exactly. And you bring up something interesting, which I, I'll be anxious to see. Before the pandemic, too many people showed up at work not feeling well. Yeah. <laughs> I've certainly been guilty of it. It yeah. used to be something that was admired. Right. Oh, you see old old Bill down there in his cubicle? He's He's got a 103 degree fever and he's still chugging away. Right. What a tough guy. And it may have told us that that's not a good idea. And it also, but more importantly, it may have helped some of our industries and companies reevaluate the point you just raised where come to work, damn it, no matter what. And now they may be saying, no, 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 you can work from home. It's fine. Stay home, get on Zoom. You'll be fine, but don't come to work if you don't feel well. And that would be a good thing because so, so to me, I've, I've concluded that I'd get the flu shot. But if I can avoid even being exposed to the flu of the coronavirus, of RSV, the better off I am because things like Metro are one of the best places to catch a virus like that. And then don't forget, when you get to the office, wash your hands. Wash those hands. Yep. Right. Because you've touched everything and God knows there's all kinds of bacteria and viruses floating around. So in some ways, hopefully it's also made us more conscious of those things. Right. Absolutely. And and what you say dovetails as well very nicely with something else that I wanted to ask you, you know, as far as policies, stay at home when you're sick, that sort of thing. That's something that as strategic communicators, regardless of whether or not you work in the healthcare or any adjacent field, you're going to be communicating about in the years ahead here. Whether it's organizational vaccine policies or shifting work from home arrangements or seasonal COVID surges, what are the issues that strategic communicators need to be paying attention to and what do we need to remember about talking about those things going forward? So I think we can't, one thing we can't do is say it's over, let's just move on and not talk about it. Because also recently, some, 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 some interesting news came out. One, it continued to show Moderna to be a really fabulous vaccine, Pfizer to be very good, and Johnson & Johnson to be better than anybody thought it would be at the end of the day, proved to be, they proved to be three very good vaccines that really worked and delivered. Uh, number one, the, the, the other thing, which is there is a, the estimates are by smart people that there is a probably about a 20% chance we will see a new variant sometime in the future 
which may or may not cause more trouble. All right. Because this is such a novel virus. We don't know its mutation history. We have a very good understanding of the flu virus, for instance. But we don't know about this one's mutation history because there is no history of it. We just know what we know right now. So there's a there some people are like, so you can't quit in terms of communicating about the importance of being vigilant, paying attention to your disease symptoms, particularly if it's July and you feel flu-like, it's probably not the flu. It's probably, you know, COVID. Um, so that's number one in terms of things to talk about. The other thing to talk about, of course, is as a strategic communication standpoint, is how we talk to people about coming back to work. Um, now, I think this is a very regional, industry-based discussion. Uh, in Washington, D.C., we're having a terrible time getting people to come back to work. Right. When I was out visiting in end of January, beginning of February, we remarked on it then. It felt very much like a ghost town still, even in 2023. It's better and it continues to get better. And it will probably be driven by the federal government, which announced recently that they're changing policy and people are going to have to come back to work. But again, they're not getting nobody. I don't think anybody's coming back to work and we don't, it shouldn't be talked about in the five day, nine hours a day concept anymore. That is definitely changed unless you work for JP Morgan or Twitter, I guess those are two companies said, you're back all the time, no matter what, if you want to work for me. Okay, fine. We'll see how that all works out. But in any event, you still have to be careful because the reason, the thing that's driving this caution is fear of people leaving the company saying, okay, fine, I'll just go work for somebody else who will let me work home all the time. So you have to balance how you communicate with that reality and decide whether it that actually is real or whether that's your, just your perception of reality and then figure out how to talk about it in those concepts because that's the direction we're going. Well, and certainly you mentioned J.P. Morgan Chase and Twitter as two examples where, and now I'm quoting Star Wars here, but the more you tighten your fist, the more employees will slip through your fingers. <laughs> and it seems to be coming in with the hard line, nope, get back in the office and get to work right now approach is not productive for those companies, at least so far on in here. Yeah. And so I think there's a lot to be said for the hybrid work arrangement of doing some time in the office, doing some time out of the office. Every company has to chart their own course through there, but communicating about it and having a discussion about it rather than passing it down as an edict seems to be the prudent way to proceed. Edicts are a thing of the past, for better or for worse. I'd argue for better, we don't have them anymore. Um, on the other hand, I'm a very pro let's get back to work person. I think we should be in the office more. I don't think we need to be here five days a week. Three sounds about right. But it also can be three, you know, nine hour days, eight hour days, whatever your company policy is, that could be two hours in the morning and then you have some childcare issues and then two hours or three hours in the middle of the day and then an hour with childcare or elderly care, for instance, and then three or four hours at the end of the day, whenever that might be for you, because who doesn't answer emails at past 10 o'clock at night or send emails past 10 o'clock? We all do. Right. So I, I think it does, but we just have to, we have to be very open and talk about that with staff, I think is important. But the reason I am pro let's get back to the office is because I do think if you have a unique culture at your company, it will lose that culture. And 
I think it's harmful for young employees entering the workplace. For guys like me who've been around a long time, I don't think it's nearly as harmful. But for people who haven't worked in an office and climbed up ladders, I think it could be harmful that we'll have a whole generation of people that will be lacking in some way. So even just in the lost opportunities for mentorship. Oh, yeah. From people that have been in the business longer. Yeah. It's all of that. So, you know, we'll see. But it will be interesting to see how the, the federal government in particular proceeds on this issue, given these the monies are ending. Some of the COVID money that exists may get clawed back as part of the debt ceiling. That's another issue for another day. And they're getting a new CDC director soon or soon enough. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what that person does and how they talk about these kinds of issues. Because again, I, we just cannot lose the fact that it's not gone. It is still an active circulating disease, again, which is killing more than 200 people a day. And that's important. That four years ago, three years ago, they weren't dying. Right. Well, and, and Bill, I'll say this, you know, another thing that I've personally caught myself doing is getting lost in the relief, yeah. the joy, the ebullience of being post-COVID and, and, and losing sight of that terrible human cost that we've paid. More than a million Americans gone, probably more than 10 million worldwide. We don't have a good count worldwide. And I know that you lost people close to you. I, I lost a few. And yet in a lot of these pandemic retrospectives that organizations are putting together now, you know, as we look back at the last three years, you hear about the silver lining of COVID or the bright side. Yeah. Is that just a defense mechanism? Are we trying to force the last three years to make sense? And, and how do we have a sense of optimism in our messaging without minimizing the terrible loss that we've suffered? Well, Americans, despite our current political environment overall, we are optimistic people. We are always thinking about the future. I think that's one of the great strengths of this country. So I think that's what it is. It is simply that that we got through this. As a country, we got through this and we survived. So I think there's a lot of that that's going on right now. But again, to your point, we can never lose sight of the fact that over a million people and counting died as a result of this disease, who otherwise, while they may have died, because again, it affected the elderly and, and in, in significant numbers, there are certainly hundreds of thousands of people who otherwise would not have died, would not have died. I just, we can never, ever, ever forget that. It is just something we can't forget. But we're Americans, so we're going to look and say, what did we learn? Were there some good things to take out of that? I think a change in workplace and workplace style is one of them. No, certainly. Yeah. A new way to think about funding research into, into medicine and science that worked extremely well. So we're, as Americans, we just want to figure out what's the, what good news out of this tragedy can we pull? The flip side, because we're optimists who look to the future, we forget the past as fast as we possibly can. <laughs> Sometimes to our detriment. Often to our detriment. So we're not funding public health departments at levels we should be. We're going the opposite direction. They're taking away power and authority at the state level from these departments, of which if they're, of which when there is a new pandemic, there will be one. When there is a new pandemic, they will have perhaps both arms tied behind their back. 
And so we'll be at risk of, again, potentially more people dying than otherwise would. So we've not learned those lessons. Let's hope we have time to correct those mistakes and those errors before the next pandemic, but there's no guarantee that we will because there's no real understanding of when the next pandemic is coming other than people think it's not another 100 years. So essentially, the last big pandemic was 1917, 1918. The, the next one was, was, was 2020, pretty close to 100 years. People think, mm, no, we're not going to go that long. It's just the world's too complicated. I'd sure prefer not to have another one in my lifetime. So would I. I will tell you that. Yes. But... As long as we're talking about reasons to feel optimistic, Bill, when you joined us last on the show, you said that one thing that you were looking forward to post-COVID was getting back out to the ballpark for a Washington Nationals game. I got to ask you, how did it feel to finally walk through the turnstiles at National Park? It, it feels good. I, I will admit, just like you said, how nice it was when we got to meet last, you know, earlier this year. It feels good to go out in crowds. It feels Washington events in Washington are returning. So we're going back to big events again for whatever they might be. People are going back to the ballpark in regular and great numbers. It feels good to be back and to do those things because it is a sense of normalcy. We want life to be normal and predictable if possible. Uh, it's stressful living under life that's not predictable. That's all really good. And the other thing is, again, as Americans in particular, for better or for worse, we can fairly quickly adjust our personal risk meters. Mm. Mm -hmm. Again, not always for our betterment, but our personal risk meters, we, we are pretty good at, it, at taking in the new risk and then just building it into our daily life. But again, it's different in every individual. We get on airplanes, which sounds terribly unsafe, a big giant metal tube flying through the air at hundreds of miles an hour. That just sounds terribly unsafe. Turns out- Statistically much safer than riding in a car. Exactly. People get nervous in planes because of the, the optics and the look and all that. But in a car, we're in control. We have, we're at the wheel. At least, time, at least for the time being, we are eventually maybe not. But right now, we, we've got the wheel and we feel confident in our ability to control the situation at hand. So, so that's why how people easily say, no problem with me driving. That's, that's easy. Um, so we do that every day. So I think that's the other reason why people, when you were saying, you know, it's over and they're getting back is because they have, it's built in now. Right. The risk is actually built into our everyday thinking and that won't change until something else changes, i.e. a new virus comes roaring back. It'll be interesting. If that happens, it'll be interesting to see what people do. And if we've learned one thing repeatedly over the last three years, it is that the common person actually has a very poor understanding of the law of large numbers, oh, yeah. of risk statistics. And, and that goes both ways from the people who refused to wear a mask to the people who spent hours meticulously sanitizing their groceries before they brought them into their house. People are bad at understanding risk. And if nothing else, it drives home for me the importance of having experts who are talented in strategic communication. And, and to that point, we've had a lot of opportunities over the last three years to celebrate some real heroes, everything from yep. the frontline workers to doctors and nurses to teachers to the people who coordinated the biggest vaccine rollout in U.S. history. We have arrived at this point due to their sacrifices and their tireless work. But one thing that I 
sort of semi-jokingly said in the last episode of this podcast where we talked episode 16 uh, was that strategic communicators had a role to play in saving the world too. Yeah. So as a crisis communicator, as a former spokesperson for health and human services here from the other side, what do you say to all the strategic communicators who did their part over the last three years? Well, first of all, thanks. I mean, a huge thank you to that whole class of people from the local public health department all the way up to the very top of the chain. Uh, thanks, because your role is extremely critical. Again, we saw, we saw good and bad, but it's extremely critical in the in the public conversation. It's very, very, very important. So thank you. Thank you for the time. I have a very good idea of what that really meant from a sacrifice of time and, and uh, you know, time not spent with your family and, and friends and all those things. I get it. Uh, I think it enforced the importance of that kind of role. Uh, in our in our society that we need those kinds of communicators all the time. You know, in that process, it also showed where our weaknesses are and what they are. And if I could wave a magic wand and say, we're going to do this for the next 30 years, it would be to have public health taught in our grade schools and our high schools. Mm. Mm-hmm. For instance, to understand the scientific process, so they know and understand why on Monday, our scientific communicators may say X, but on Friday, they may say X and Y. Not because they were not telling us the truth on Monday, facts changed, and maybe we got some new scientific information, and therefore now we're telling you what we know now. It's the basics of crisis communication, which is Tell people what you know when you know it. One thing we could have done is done a better job of saying, this is what we know right now at this moment based on what we know and based on the history of viruses. And we're working to improve on that. We are collecting data. Yes. This is going to change. So what we're saying today will change. Bear with us. Be with us in that change. I think that's one thing that that we didn't do well was there was too much certainty spoken and there was a balance between wishy-washy, this hand, the other hand, and total certainty, which sometimes comes out in these kinds of communications. Um, so we, we have to hopefully get a better balance of that because I think it's important. So, but if my wand would be teach all kids about the basics of public health and the scientific process so they understand when they hear this communication, they'll understand what's going on. Right, right. We could all be so lucky as to have an understanding that science is a process. It is not an unassailable set of facts. It is a process of testing hypotheses and challenging assumptions and collecting data to put forward our best understanding for now. For now, at the moment. There are no defining definitive endpoint eurekas. Doesn't happen. Never has, never will. But I think a lot of people believe that's the case. Science knows something because it just is. That's not true. (laughs) Certainly, it has been always a pleasure to be able to have these discussions with you, for you to share the best facts that we have right now and sort of a look behind the curtain of what goes on in the realm of public health. And we thank you for sharing your time and expertise once again so generously. Bill Pierce. 
former spokesman for the Department of Health and Human Services, currently a consultant at APCO Worldwide. Thank you for joining us on Lead Balloon and be well. Be well. You too, Dusty. Thanks. And thank you for listening. Lead Balloon tells immersive tales monthly from the world of strategic communications. Visit podcampmedia.com slash leadballoon to sign up for our email newsletter. And check our back catalog of episodes as well. There's some good ones out there, like the time we embedded with the U.S. Navy Blue Angels public affairs team, or the time we talked to the most famous brand manager on Twitter about how she accidentally turned the Wendy's account into a viral sensation. So do go back and check those out. But I am Dusty Weiss, and we will talk to you next month on Lead Balloon. We'll be right back.